Hello again. I am going to be reading you the scripture for this morning, and it is all of Galatians 3, and you can actually find it right in your bulletin. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray that this morning it would not be just heat, but it would be light. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, my name is Brian Fitzgerald. I'm a pastor uh, over in Argyle, New York. You probably haven't heard of Argyle or been to Argyle. Uh, It's about 30 minutes north of Saratoga Springs, about an hour uh, northeast of Albany. Uh, But Matt and I served together in St. Louis for some time, and so when I heard he was taking a mini sabbatical, uh, I offered to help and do some pulpit supply, and so he took me up on that offer. Uh, He is... As far as I know, planning to be back next week, and I think he's thrilled to come back and worship with you again. Uh, We are looking together at Galatians chapter 3 because you have been spending time in Acts, as far as I understand. And so uh, we're going to wrestle with a question that the church has wrestled with for a long, long time. We're going to expose that by talking about some of the things that we focus on. So many of us Uh, if we're honest, focus on behavior modification. The most immediate illustration of this is that of a personal trainer. Uh, She tells us when to wake up. Uh, She tells us to buy special clothes, to wear to the gym where we meet her. And uh, she puts us through a workout, tells us what to eat, and tells us to drink lots of water. And we will change. And it works. And change is often good. But there are areas in our lives that if we focus on merely cleaning up or changing our behavior, we've actually missed the point, and catastrophically so. It would be like um, the foundation of our house under the kitchen giving way, and we deal with that by getting out the Swiffer and mopping the floors over and over. We're not fixing the problem, and it's getting worse. And so the church is wrestling with what that might look like in our lives. You and I might experience that in another way with our parenting. I have three children, and it is my temptation to work with my children on how they behave, to talk with them about what they're doing, to focus on compliance or conformity, and to ignore transformation to ignore heart work. So my children can get the message that the thing that isn't the main thing is the main thing. And so the church is having a discussion in Acts chapter 15 about what is the big deal? What's the main thing of the gospel? What do we need to whittle it down to, if if you will? And Paul has already dealt with that in Galatians. He writes about it here in Galatians chapter 3. And he's very concerned about it. When we read, you saw that the first line was, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That is as confronting as it feels. 
that would be as stark to them as it is to us. Oh, foolish Connecticans. Connecticans. I don't know how you say that. I don't know. Kentucky? No, I can't get that. But the point is, is that if somebody were to say that to you, you would all of a sudden take a breath. And that's what Paul wants the Galatian church to do. Wait a second. What do you think the big deal is? What, what are you doing? What are you fighting with each other about? And he has dealt with that in the Galatian church, and that's why the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 takes place. Because the church needs to come to an understanding on something. And what is that? Well, Jesus arrived on the scene and he changed things. It's as if the key to the cipher is all of a sudden discovered. Or as if that puzzle that you've been trying to put together, you finally have the picture. And so everything's becoming more clear and we're trying to figure out what does following God look like? How does Jesus inform that discussion? Where were we getting it wrong that we now need to course correct? And so the Jewish church, the young church in Jerusalem is wrestling with that question and they're wrestling with it in Acts 15 because churches like the one in Galatians is struggling with this conversation. And so what Paul is saying to them is this is what's key to this discussion. This is where we need to start this is what we need to focus on. Don't deviate. Don't make the mistake of adding things to Christ. And so we're going to begin by asking the question of what is the core message of the Bible? What is the core gospel message? Look with me, if you would, at the first paragraph in your bulletin. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus Christ crucified. We've got to start there. Paul starts there. He will actually say elsewhere, he'll say, we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and he's folly to the Gentiles. But to those of us who are being saved, he's precious. You and I have to start there. It's easy for us to talk about the teachings of Jesus that's readily acceptable in our, in our current moment. And sometimes, like around Easter, we can talk about a risen Jesus. But we don't want to skip the middle. We don't want to jump over a crucified Christ. The cross is significant. I mean, obviously, that could crush a person. The cross matters. And so we can't jump over it to get to the end story. Nor can we stop before we get there and just talk about what Jesus wants us to do. We have to reconcile ourselves dead with Christ. Paul had said that previously in chapter 2 of Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When you and I think about what we're here to do, what the main thing is, we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin with Christ. His crucifixion is what changes who we are and how we relate to God 
and his word. So with that in mind, if the thing I need to talk about is Jesus Christ, if the core message of the Bible is a crucified and risen Savior, then why is it 2,000 pages? Why do we have the Old Testament? Why do we have the New and all these letters? Why couldn't he just give us a sentence or a picture of a man on a cross or a video of Jesus from the cross to the tomb to the ascended Christ at at the right hand of the Father? I think the way I can illustrate this is by talking about playing a game without knowing the rules. Perhaps you've experienced this as you were watching a sport on TV. The other day I tried to watch tennis. I had no idea who was winning. I I don't understand the score. I don't understand what's in and what's out and when it's a fault and why that person got to serve again. It confuses me because I don't know the rules. And so if you asked me to play tennis, you would be very frustrated with me. Partially because I wouldn't be good and partially because I wouldn't know that I wasn't that good. And so... When we look at the scriptures, Paul is telling us that the law actually taught us something. Look with me, if you would, at the third paragraph in your bulletin. It starts, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the law was, as it were, a guardian, he says in verse 24. That word guardian uh, carries with it the idea of a, a, a servant who had the responsibility of taking the children to school and picking them up and sitting with them as they did their homework and making sure they made it to their sports practice and made dinner and ate and got showered. It was a guardian. It was a babysitter. If we were French, we would probably say au pair. And so the law operates to, uh, N.T. Wright says, operate as a quarantine. That it keeps us kind of under wraps. It helps us understand what does God want? How short do we fall of that? What do we need? We need intervention. In this text, the law leads us to believe that all of us are under a curse, verse 10 told us. And that it wasn't ever meant to give life. The law of the Spirit sets us free, Paul writes in Romans. It sets us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So in Acts 15, Peter knows this. He actually stands up as the church is discussing the law and its relation to Christ and him crucified and risen again and how the church is supposed to respond to this. And they're specifically addressing circumcision. Is that necessary? Is it a marker for the people of God? And Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
as they're talking about circumcision, they're not really just talking about circumcision. They're talking about the law in its entirety. And the fact that as they tried to move under the law, it was a load. So when Jesus comes in Matthew and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What he's saying is, I'm going to do everything that the law requires, and you don't have to. You don't have to. I'm going to do it, and then what am I going to do? I'm actually going to stand condemned in your place. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. The lawmaker became the law keeper, but then took our place in condemnation as though he were the lawbreaker. The lawmaker became the law keeper, but then took our place and condemnation as though he were the lawbreaker. Paul's saying, you don't need circumcision. You don't need the law in that regard. It's not what marks you anymore. You receive the promises of God because of the work of Christ on your behalf, because he hung cursed on a tree. Because when the law brought death, he suffered the death so that you might receive life. So why have all these rules? It's to point us to our need for a Savior. To recognize that God created us to be image bearers and that looks a certain way. But now under Christ, that law operates in a different manner. It gives, it gives bones to our love. That's a bigger discussion. But at this point, what we need to focus on is we receive the promises of God through the work of Christ and nothing else makes that happen. We don't add to it. We don't do more. We don't come to Christ and give him all our stuff. We don't come to Christ and put ourselves on the chopping block. We don't come to Christ and get our act together. We just come to Christ. We just place our faith in him. Why did it take so long? Look with me at the fourth paragraph. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So he's been referencing throughout Galatians 3, the covenant that God made with Abraham, specifically in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And he's saying, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That's what he's pointing to. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, your offspring. That's Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward. So a promise was made to Abraham. 430 years later or so, there's uh, the, the um, Ten Commandments come at Sinai when the people of God are in the wilderness. He's saying when we add that, it doesn't annul the promises made by God. It doesn't make them void. For if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what he's saying is, Christ has made it clear that all the way along, we never earned our place with God. 
It was always a gift. It was always a promise. Abraham got that. Much of Israel lost their way. Sometimes it was into idol worship. Sometimes it was into earning things. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees are saying, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do this, and they're not lifting a finger to, this for, to help with this burden. They lost their way. But early on, it was a gift. It was pointing to Jesus coming on a cross to suffer for them. So what N.T. Wright will say is that when people believe the gospel of Jesus, they are already Abraham's two true children. That the moment that that takes place, the moment faith comes about in your life, you're already made a child of God. You don't have to add anything to that. Sure, there are sacraments that are a gift, and it's important for us to do those. We're told not to neglect them. And sure, God calls us to love our neighbors. But in doing those things, we're not adding to the work of Christ. We're not making ourselves prettier before God. We're merely responding in gratitude. That's what worship is. That's what our life is. And so while the young church is wrestling with circumcision, the conclusion they're coming to is, we've got to get rid of it because it's confusing people. They think that they have to receive Jesus and get circumcised. And that's just not the case. So why does this matter today? In our current moment, most of us are told that faith is folly. That for you to believe something is some sort of weakness. And what we can admit as an individual who attempts to live by faith in fits and starts. What I can admit to you is that there is a degree of truth to that statement. That my faith is a profession of my weakness. It is an acknowledgement that the folly of the cross is the only answer to this rat race, to this workaday world, to this fight for justification that I'm not going to be able to make it on my own. And that anything I add is just going to be dross. It's just going to be insufficient in regards to winning the favor of the Lord. And so what I, what I admit is that placing my faith in Christ is a statement of my dependence upon Him. It is a statement of my inadequacy before a holy God. But I will also say it's a relief. Because if you've been on Instagram lately, or Pinterest, or Facebook, or you've gone out to the mall, if there's any malls left, you recognize that there's a lot of messages about what you need to do, who you need to be, how together you need to have it. And the message of faith is, None of that's true. You just need Jesus. You don't need to be somebody other than who you are. You don't need to do more big, grand things. You don't need to get your act together. 
You just need faith. Many of us forget the words of Scripture where it says the righteous shall live by faith. We forget that the principal work of the Spirit, remember we read about a promise being given? It's apparent from this text and many others that the promise, one part of the promise is actually not a what but a who, it's the Spirit. And the principal work of the Spirit in your life is actually to strengthen your faith. So the message of the church is not come here and get your act together. The message of the church is not come here and do more things. The message of the church is and always will be in its uncorruptedness, when it's uncorrupted, come here and grow in faith. Dear one, what you need today is not more muscle or less fat. It's not more money, more vacation. It's not a better routine. It's not trying harder. What you need today is more faith. You need to live by faith. Take home, take home this bulletin, read this chapter again and underline every time it says faith. It's a lot. We are a people who live by faith, who walk by faith. And if the principal work of the Spirit is faith, John Calvin said the principal work of faith is prayer. So you want to know, how do I know if faith is growing in my heart and in my life? The answer to that question might be, what's your prayer life look like? I don't mean do you stand on a street corner and pray for everybody to see. I mean like nuts and bolts communion with Jesus. I mean like day in, day out, morning, going to bed at night. What's your prayer life look like? You don't need to tell me. You don't need to tell your friends. But you could wrestle with that in your own life. If my faith is growing, my conversation with the Lord will grow. I'll talk to him about my day. I'll talk to him about the fight I just had with my wife. I'll talk to him about my kids seem to be drifting away. I'll talk to him about money and how tight it is. I'll talk to him about the guy who just pulled out in front of me and cut me off in traffic. I'll talk to him about what I'm going to eat tonight or how much I enjoyed what I ate tonight or I'm going to talk to him about traveling and I'm going to talk to him about my vacation. I'm going to talk to him about where I should give and who I should give to. I'm going to talk to him about the friend who's hurting him. I'm going to talk to him about the fact that I'm doubting and I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to talk to him. And there's nothing, there's nothing off. There's nothing, nothing off menu. Everything is open before him. And dear ones, as we have those conversations, as we grow in our prayer life, we can begin to recognize that our faith is growing. Our faith not in our own efforts or capacities or strengths, but rather our faith in the work of Christ. That we're praying prayers because we acknowledge that standing before the throne of God is one who advocates for us. He is our brother, Jesus. And because of his work, we are sons and daughters of the king. 
Because of his work, we are offspring, is what it tells us in verse 29. We are heirs according to promise. What's interesting is in this text, Paul is actually talking to a young church, to people who have come to faith in Christ. This is the gospel for believers. But if you're here and you don't know what you make of the work of Christ, you don't know what you make of what the scriptures say and what God is calling you to, this invitation is for you as well. May your faith grow. May it become just a mustard seed. And with that, Jesus says, I can move mountains. So the heart of the message is the crucified Christ. And in him, the law has both been fulfilled and we are strengthened to do it. And he came because God promised him to us and he promised his spirit to us. And as the Spirit comes into our life, the work He does is faith. Let's pray. God in heaven, sometimes your word is like a mystery. Sometimes it feels very complicated and hard to understand. I pray that the Spirit would illuminate it before us like He's promised to do. That He would put before our eyes the person of Jesus Christ in such a way that we are lifted up, that our faith is strengthened, that our weak knees are made strong. May we not be a people who drift. Who float away. May we be a people who are strong in faith. In your name we pray. Amen.